made me cry already. <laughs> Rebecca, we are so glad to have you with us at Christ Community. And let me welcome not just our St. Charles audience, but uh, we have congregations joining us right now down in Aurora, Blackberry Creek and Streamwood Bartlett, and out in DeKalb, and probably a lot of people watching online today. And so we just want to say welcome. In fact, let's give it up to everybody watching at our other campuses. And we're going we're gonna to jump right in. So the Boston Marathon, it's the oldest, uh, the world's oldest annual run, uh, annually run marathon, 116 years and, uh, you know, still going on at the time. You were there in 2013. What, what were you doing at the Boston Marathon? Well, I always try to make it clear because everyone thinks I was a runner. So I was running the marathon. I'm like, no, no, no. I was on the sidelines eating chocolate-covered pretzels, wondering why anyone runs 26.2 miles for fun. Let's hear but it. <laughs> it, was, it was my birthday weekend, my first time ever in the city of Boston. And my son and I had gone up there to cheer on my, um, the guy that I was dating his mom was running the, the marathon at the time. So we okay. were up there as spectators. Hey, how many, how many marathon runners here? Anybody run a marathon? Good. A bunch of you. How many uh, chocolate covered pretzel eaters? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just so you know your audience today. Yes. Right? So three hours and 48 minutes into the marathon, long after the, the front runners have already finished the race, a bomb goes off three feet away from you. So it knocked you flat. When you came to and the smoke began to clear, what did you see around you? The hardest part is, is that it was a war scene that day. And that's something that I still don't get out of my head ever. And when I you know, was looking around, all I could do was move my head. My bones were laying next to me on the sidewalk. I could move no part of my body. I knew that my leg was on fire and I was laying in a pool of my own blood. And then everything that these brothers packed into these pressure cooker bombs and nails, BBs, ball bearings, pieces of metal, and it, they were all in us and on the ground and people's body parts weren't even attached to them laying next to me. It was, it was horrific. Pretty gruesome. Yes. Wow, wow. What was your chief concern at that moment? My concern was, where's my little boy? He was yeah. sitting on my feet. I had told him to sit down because he had gotten bored watching the runners pass. And I, I wondered to myself, why in the world did I bring a five-year-old to a marathon? And, you know, I told him, I said, buddy, sit down, and, and this is going to be over soon. And the, the bomb just happened to be right behind us. And so I took everything in the back of the legs, and that's what they say saved his life. Oh, my goodness. So... I imagine there were people running around. Um, we often hear about the heroism of folks, the first responders on the scene. Uh, I always wonder, does that really happen that way or do people like head for the near, nearest exit? What did you see by way of bystanders and those helping out? It absolutely happens that way. And I think with everything in life, you know, all of the bad stuff, there's still so much more good surrounding it. And so that day I was laying on the ground fighting for my life. If I had been on the ground for just a couple minutes longer, I wouldn't be here. But because those people ran towards the danger and not knowing if a, a third or a fourth bomb was about to go off, they wanted to help save the people that they could. That's the reason I'm sitting here today. So I could not have more respect and love and admiration for people that choose to live their lives absolutely. in that manner. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes, yeah. In fact, let's, 
Let's do this. I'm curious how many first responder types are in our audience. So across our four campuses, if you're a police officer, a EMT, a firefighter, a first responder of any sort, would you just stand for a second and let us recognize you? We want to thank you for the job you do. Do we have any of those? See some back there? Thank you. Yeah, good. Wow, if somebody actually had to put your, you said your leg was on fire. They had to put your leg out. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So they rushed you to the hospital, and they performed these initial, uh, this initial operation on you. And when you woke up, uh, you saw a familiar face, but it was a surprising face for you to see. Tell us about that. I did. I saw my mom, and I was questioning how in the world did she get to Boston because my mom was living in Texas. Yeah. So I was too, and it was just so great to see her because it was like she was escorting me into the world a second time, and I knew that from that moment on, no matter what happened, I was going to be okay, and there was a reason that I was still there, but I was placed in a medically induced coma, and when I was waking up, I was trying to talk to my mom, and, and I tried sign language to tell her that I loved her, and, and I had so much to say, and I still had tubes down my throat and so she gave me a piece of paper and with my undamaged right hand I wrote God is not finished with me yet there were angels everywhere all around us wow so God is not finished with me yet not exactly what you you expect someone's going to write on a slip of paper when they come out of a, a, a coma what 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 you know where was your relationship with God at, at this point that caused you to write something like that to have this assurance that he's in control of this situation when I look back on everything, that day I was able to have a clear picture of that my son was okay. And I remember even laying on the ground praying. I said, God, if this is it for me, take me. But let me know that Noah's all right. And a, a police officer or a first, first responder came and, and picked him up and kind of placed him on the ground to where I could see him, not knowing that we were even together. We got separated from two different, or in two different hospitals. And, you know, but that's what I thought of while I was laying in that bed and it didn't matter what condition I was in, I was still here and God had a purpose for my life. That's the only reason I'm here. Wow, wow. what a good perspective to see the bigger picture that God's in control, must have something in my future that I'm still alive after this bomb goes off. Yes. So, so five days later, the FBI shows up in your hospital room. Never a dull and, moment. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and they tell you that one of the two bombers has been killed, but his brother is just down the hall in the same hospital getting the same expert medical care. What, what did you think about that? That's a hard thing to wrap your head around because not only am I trying to figure out what it's like to the aftermath of being a survivor of a terrorist attack, but then they say, by the way, the guy that blew you up is right down the hall from you getting the same care that you're receiving. And my mom said that was the first time that she got really angry because during surgeries, we were going every other day and they were willing me down and we had to pass by the guards that were guarding his room and then to know that the same nurses and doctors that were taking care of us and seeing all of these, you know, horrible, horrible injuries are having to go in there and do the same. It was, it was just a very hard thing. Bit surreal. Yes. Yeah. But you didn't have time to think about that, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. I, I wanted to focus on what, how could I, you know, start piecing my life back together and what I could do moving forward. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, piecing your life back together, you got a five-year-old son mm -hmm. who's been through this traumatic experience sees his mom in a hospital bed. What did you say to Noah? How, how did you describe what you'd just been through to him? 
it's very hard to explain something like that to a five-year-old. And, you know, we, we talked about bad people doing bad things, but that there were still you know, so many wonderful people who have supported and loved us. And we, we had cards and just everything pouring in from all over the country. So Noah was saying firsthand all the love that we were, been, that we were being shown. And, you know, it's, I, I think it's something that he still can't grasp because he's 10 now, but when he is sitting in middle school or high school and he's reading about this in the history book, I mean, he's going to be like, wow, we were, we were there. We lived through we, that. Yes. yes. Yeah. Wow. You had to go through a lot of surgeries, uh, a lot of pain. Um, one of the things you describe in your book, and by the way, I recommend uh, Rebecca's book to you. It's called Taking My Life Back, My Story of Faith, Determination, and surviving the Boston Marathon bombing. I've read it thoroughly. Great book and an encouraging, inspiring book. Thank you. And uh, so you're going through all these painful surgeries, one of them called de debridement. Mm -hmm. as, as I read it, it's actually spelled like debridement. <laughs> yes. Yeah, kind, kind of like the guy whose fiance backs out of the wedding, right? right. Is that you know, what is debridement? Tell us what that is. <laughs> Well, I learned what it was too, and it was just picking out all of the pieces of metal, hundreds of, I mean, thousands really, pieces of metal that were in our bodies because of this. And here, four and a half years later, I'm getting ready to have another surgery next week of an issue that a, a piece of shrapnel has caused in my leg again. It's still in there. So it is. I still have tons of metal still left in there from, you know, they can't justify more operations until it actually comes to the surface. So You have trouble getting through? Metal detectors at the at Oh, the airport. it's it's always an adventure at the airport. I always feel sorry for the people behind me because I, I, I give them a show. It's it just depends on who's working and their level of humor. But there's been one time where they ran my entire prosthetic through the X ray machine. They, you, had, they, you had to take it off and Yes, I had to take it off. So I'm <laughs> sitting in the chair legless. That was that was quite entertaining. <laughs> oh my goodness. And in addition to the pain of all this and as I understand it, I mean, every time you had a surgery, they had to stitch and unstitch and restitch and, and whatever. And in addition to all that pain, there was some emotional turmoil. Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe when I re read about this in your book, there were actually some knuckleheads posting stuff on your Facebook page <laughs> calling into question whether or not this had happened. Yes. Uh, really? I have learned about conspiracy theorists that I did not know about before and that I am called an actress at very best and I make millions of dollars a year to fool America and I blew my own leg off on purpose just to gain all sure, kinds of attention. people do that all the time. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> so it's knucklehead is a good word for it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, and, and I mean kind of very angry and mean-spirited some of it. It, it's hard. It's hard to read those types of comments and messages, but for every one of those, there's thousands of other amazing ones, and that's what gets you through, and that's what you have to focus yes. on. You can't focus wow. on the bad stuff. Wow, wow. Well, your condition finally improved in Boston, and you were able to go home to mm -hmm. Houston, Texas. Uh, did that lift your spirits? It was difficult because I spent 39 days in the Boston Hospital, Beth Israel, and then they said they wanted to put me on a jet and take me to a hospital closer to home. And as great as that was, it was also extremely scary because I was leaving the walls of this security blanket that I had built around me, and that's when PTSD set in and being scared to death to even leave a room, much less a hospital of all these people that I have come to know and love and trust to take care of me in the best 
best yes. way. Yeah. And so that, that ride home was one of the scariest experiences of my life. Yeah, you left your cocoon. Yes. Yeah. And, and as I understand it too, they, they wanted to wean you off of the medication, the pain medication. They did. And that, that was another difficult thing, too, because I had a, a medication regimen in Boston that was not working in Houston, and so they started trying to wean me off of things. Yes. And when you're on medication like that for 39 days, it's a lot more difficult. And I had an uncle who, who passed away a couple years ago from drug overdose, and that's, that's a very scary thing in my family, and it's something that I, I did not want to happen to me. I was terrified of it. So it didn't, it, it, you know, everything didn't change. You didn't get rosy just because you were back in Texas. For some of us who are listening right now and just, we got a little bit of a cynical spirit to us. We, we might thank, goodness, her story. The, the subtitle here is my story of faith, determination, and surviving the Boston Marathon bombing. Faith implies a relationship with God, a trust in God. The cynical side of us says, what was God doing? I mean, if God was in charge, was he paying attention to something else. Did he miss all this? Did he not have Rebecca's back? I mean, how, how do you respond to that? He always has my back, just like he has everyone else's. You know, God didn't do this to me. There's, there's another very powerful being at work, and that's, that's the devil. And so he didn't intend to the, the harm on the Boston Marathon, but God brought me through it, just like he brought my son through it. And there's no rhyme or reason as to why Noah was sitting on my feet and that, that I made that decision. That wasn't me. That was God. That was saying, hey, your life isn't over, and Noah's life isn't over, and I'm going to protect you, and that's what he's done. And Four and a half years later, I, I still believe that with all my heart. Yeah. You know, friends, there's, there's, a, there's a principle here to take away, and that is whatever you're going through, if you don't have that assurance that God's got the big picture, um, I mean, I, I often, as a pastor, I hear people tell me uh, about their life's tragedies, mm -hmm. and, I, and it's not unusual for someone who's a Christ follower to say, I don't know what people do with this kind of stuff if they, if they don't have God in their life. Yes. Have you ever wondered that? Like, what, how do people get through this? I wonder that every day because I look back on the journey that I've been on and, and the bad days because there are bad days yes. and there, there are a lot of good, but there are some days where I, I mean, it's, it's awful. And like, how, why did I survive? And, you know, why, why do I have to do this? But for every one of those bad days, God is there. And if I didn't have the faith in a bigger plan and the faith that he is more powerful than all of my problems put together, what would I have? What would be the motivation to get up every day if there's nothing to get up for? You know, this is temporary. All of our problems, all of the things we go through in life, that's, that's just a chapter, but our a chapter in eternity that lasts forever. So I would much rather endure the pain now and be in heaven forever with God. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah. So you, yeah. Let's. <laughs> um, so God puts present life tragedies into perspective and brings comfort and strength. Yes. But he, there's also a promise of something beyond that. Yes. You know. Uh, I want to take a look at some of the other tragedies, so to speak, hardships in your life. Because, you know, one of the things that, that struck me about the book, in fact, it made it hard to put this interview together. Because <laughs> there are a number of hardships that you allude to in your book. And I thought, how am I going to get this whole story out there? Because my guess is that most of the people listening to you are never going to face a terrorist bomb. They're never going to be three feet away from a bomb that explodes and, and blows a leg off but they're going to experience hardship. We're all going to experience hardship. 
And so I, I want to know how, how does God show up in the midst of this? So let me, let me tick off a few of the hardships mentioned in your book. And by the way, I'm not outing her here. I'm, I'm, I'm only referring to stuff that's in her book. So some of you are going to say, I can't believe he brings this up. Well, I'm just bringing up what's in your book. So we're going to start with an abusive dad. Yes. So my earliest memories of, of being a child is having a dad that was not only abusive, but an evangelist. And so he was, was going, he was a preacher and he went, he traveled all over the country and all over the world preaching the gospel. And in our local church, I would have to sit on the, the front pew and listen to him and see everybody admire this man, but be scared to death that when the church doors closed and we had to go home of what was going to be awaiting me. And so from a very early age, I had a very skewed vision of what Christianity was and what God's love was. But on the other hand, and I saw God at work in my life because I had a mother who, despite all of the abuse she was being put through and despite all of the turmoil, she still had this light that was shining in her and through her. And I wanted to know what that light was. I wanted to have that light for myself. And so I look back and even though it was so painful, it was some of those moments that really molded me into the person I am today. Wow. You know, let me just say as an aside, all preachers are not like her dad. Oh, all right. I just <laughs> it. But, but in, in spite of this abusive home situation, th this is where you came to know God in a personal way through Christ. I did. And it was through those nights of being scared of my dad and being worried that I might not even make it to see my next birthday. It, it was when I really clung to the Lord and I went to church and I found, you know, a congregation that embraced us. And my mom eventually left my dad and she ended up marrying a, a wonderful man who adopted myself and my, my two sisters and they had another daughter. And so it's, it's a blessing out of a tragedy and that's what life is. It's full of blessings. Yeah, yeah. So this is the God taking. I heard someone say once that God draws straight lines out of crooked lines. So he, you know. That's a good analogy. Yes, yeah, yeah. He's the one who takes the dark things of our lives and can turn them to good if our trust and our hope is in him. I want to I talk about another one of these hardships in your life. But this is one you brought on yourself. And so, yeah, so I want to, you know, the reason I want to bring this up is because it's easy, I think, for us to relate with God, God coming alongside someone who's in a tragedy not of their own making. Mm -hmm. So someone has done something abusive or, you know, injurious to them. It makes sense that God will come along and show compassion on them. But sometimes the hardships in our life are stupid things that we've, bad decisions we've made. Yes. So my question is kind of, does God help us in those situations or does he wash his hands of us and say, okay, you got yourself into that, you get yourself out. So the first one I want to bring up is a teenage pregnancy. Well, you know, that is a decision of my own making and a big mistake that God was nowhere a part of. But the amazing thing about God is that people will always fail you, but God never will. And so, you know, I, I made a bad decision at 19 years old, 
But God turned that into one of the biggest blessings of my entire life with my little boy Noah. And I was a child trying to take care of a child myself. But through that and through those hardships, I rededicated my life to Christ at 22 years old when Noah was two. And I vowed that he was always going to have a mom that no matter what showed him God and showed him that he will always show up no matter what mistakes we make, no matter how much we hurt him, because God is a God of of forgiveness and mercy. Friends, this is something to grab hold of, okay? Because some of us are listening to this, and there are hardships in our lives right now of our own making. You know, we're financially in debt because of poor spending decisions, or we've got a broken relationship because of anger problems, or any number of things that we brought on ourselves. And the good news is when we surrender to Christ, as you said, at 22, saying, okay, you, you take all this, you know, that's when God goes to work. And it's not just believing certain things about Jesus in a general sense. It's surrendering. It's giving control over to him. So I want to talk about another one of those situations, all right? And a broken marriage. And and what's interesting about this is that you had kind of come back to the Lord, surrendered to him. Then this Boston Marathon bombing happens. And after that is when the marriage began that ended very shortly in divorce. How did that happen? No, it's one of those things I look back on and and just red flags, red flags, flashing lights. You know, I think that's what God does when you're not following his path. But then you think, no, these plans are good. These are my plans. And I I see it. And I was at the marathon with uh, with a guy I was dating. And then all of a sudden, it was this huge thing. We had survived together. We went through this this horrible tragedy. And now we're this fairy tale couple afterwards. And he proposed. And then a wedding website gave us this big, spectacular, wedding at the Biltmore Estates in North Carolina. Biltmore. Yes. I've I've been there, that huge mansion. It was something fit for royalty that I in no way thought I deserved and, and still don't. And I just, I was trying not to be ungrateful because of everything that was given to us. And I this is all free. It was. And I wanted it to work so bad. And I, I put my trust and faith in a man instead of putting it in God. And that was where I went wrong. And I, I saw all the signs I needed to, but I still ignored it. And so afterwards, you know, I found myself right back to my, some things that my biological dad told me, and I was never good enough, and I was never going to be. And, you know, you, you take infidelity and, and many other things, an abusive and emotionally abusive marriage, and if God's not in it, it's not going to work. And so it didn't last. So there was unfaithfulness on his part, and yet because of your upbringing and your abusive dad, you're, you're thinking a little bit like maybe this is my problem. I yeah, did. Yes. I, I yeah. tried counseling. I, I wanted it so bad to happen. And God was telling me, no, Rebecca, you deserve more than this. And now I'm, I'm thankful. But it was one of the hardest times in my life. It was a very public time in my life. And it was, you know, it, w- it was hard to wrap my head around, much less tell other people about. One, one of the incidents you mentioned in your book was, I mean, it was... I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit. It was shortly after your operation, your amputation, Mm -hmm. that you got news of a text relationship that he was having with another woman. Talk about devastating timing. A note was delivered to my hospital, and so that was not exactly something you want to see right after your leg gets chopped off. But you you roll with it. It's life, and that's the big thing. It's Like you said, the majority of people are not going to get blown up by a bomb at a marathon, but every single person has life blow up in their face. 
And this, again, I just want to reiterate, not to rub it in, but this was your decision. It was. Yes. And you blew past the things God was, yes. the red lights, as you, you, you said. Yes. So I'm getting a picture here of, as we talk about a relationship with Christ, which is a real popular topic of ours at Christ Community Church, I get the idea that it's possible to think we have a good relationship with God when we don't. Is, yes. is, is that accurate to say it that way? It's very accurate. And I look back on my own life and I, I think of the times where I thought I was walking with Christ and I thought that, you know, I was going to church and I was being the good Christian girl, but I couldn't have been farther away from it. And now it's so different because I am letting the Lord lead me for the first time. You know, the last four years have been such a a recovery period, but also a healing period for me. And it's brought me so close to the Lord because I finally realized at 30 years old that, hey, his plans are way better than my own. So I should probably stop trying to plan things by myself because it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're, you know, we're going to come back to this before we wrap things up today. You said, letting the Lord lead me. It's, it's possible to be a believer, small letter B, Mm-hmm. and not be one who's truly surrendered to God, not, not truly put your faith in, in Jesus to begin leading your life. And that, that's a huge difference, isn't it? It is. It's, yes. it's the biggest difference. Yeah. It, around here, we talk a lot about idolatry, that you know, we have this tendency to put other things in God's, God's place and look for security or significance or pleasure from them. But it never works, does it? Yeah. It doesn't, and it, it's never going to last because God is the only one that can give you that type of security and comfort and who will never, ever forsake you. Well, let's go back to your surgeries uh, because you went through 17 surgeries. And after 17 surgeries, trying to save the leg, uh, they eventually took it off. And you threw a par- an amputation party. Is that, is that right? <laughs> I did. It was awesome. <laughs> so I had been through 17 times they put me under, and they've done a total of 60-something operations on me altogether. And I spent a year and a half in a wheelchair or on bed rest. I couldn't walk. And I said, you know what? This is holding me back. And I joked that it was a bad boyfriend. I needed to get it out of my life for good, send it out the door. And so I wrote, it's not you, it's me, on my battered leg. And I I did a breakup letter. And we had a going away dinner at a friend of ours, their restaurant. And I did one last pedicure, Boston Strong Blue and Yellow. And I sent that bad boyfriend right out the door. (laughs) Amazing. What is, it, uh, what is it like to get used to a prosthetic leg? I don't think I'll ever get used to it. It's not something that I'll ever wake up to and be like, man, I'm so glad I'm an amputee today. But, you know, it's a daily reminder of how short my life is. And when I reach for my prosthetic, and no matter how painful it is sometimes, no matter how much I don't want to put it on, I, I'm thankful for that because I do have that reminder and I live my life in a different way because I don't take the little things for granted anymore and I get up and I thank the Lord for every day that I just get to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, does it hurt now or do, does, I mean, is there, you get over it and four years out you're, you know, just a matter of course, putting it out. It still hurts and I have an amazing team of doctors that try everything that they can to, to not 
have me in pain. But the aftermath of getting blown up by a bomb is, is something that's, that's difficult. And yeah. there are still so many things that are wrong with my legs and, and even my left hand and internally that I think it's just a full body recovery every day for the rest of my life. Yeah. Now, I noticed you're, you're not wearing a cosmetic prosthetic leg because they, they make some that look like a real leg. They're fabulous. You, you have deliberately chosen a mechanical looking leg. Why? So for many reasons, but one of the biggest is that I don't want this to define who I am. And what defines me is what I choose to do afterwards. And so this is my mark of survival. And I don't want to be ashamed of that. And my mom was really nervous because she thought I wasn't going to wear dresses or shorts or feel like a lady. And I said, Mom, I'm going to have fun with this. I'm still going to be Rebecca. I'm just going to be a robot version of Rebecca. <laughs> and so I still wear shorts and dresses and I get my toes painted every two weeks and the nail ladies fight over which one gets to do my fake leg. And I named her Felicia. She's the star of the show. I just Felicia. transport her. Okay. Yeah. Should and I have directed some questions? Felicia probably yeah. should have. <laughs> yeah. And Felicia and I have a love hate relationship. You know, most of the time I want to throw her across the room and never look at her again, but I have to put my leg on in order to go about my day. And you know, my blessings far outweigh my problems. Yeah. So wow. now you have participated in the Boston marathon. Yes. Okay. You, you didn't run the whole thing. I didn't. I didn't even know you could run part of it. I mean, usually they call that cheating. Right? <laughs> usually, you know, you sneak in. So, but you know, you get a you get a pass to do that. So, yeah, I think when when something like that happens, you get a free pass for life. You so, get blown yeah, up, they, and you get to uh, yeah. yeah. You get to experience that. But I wanted to run the full thing. I was determined to run the full thing. And I had gotten Felicia in January, and the, the marathon was in April. And they said, Rebecca, there is no way. You've got to walk before you run. I said, you don't know who I am then because I'm stubborn. But I had gotten up to 16 miles oh in two weeks before. Wow. And thank you. <laughs> But I busted my leg open on that 16-mile run, and I went to the doctor, and obviously I couldn't run the whole thing. And I said, you know, I want to run 3.2 miles, equivalent of a 5K. But I said, this is the number of months that it's taken me to not only learn how to walk, but how to run again. And for me, it wasn't the number of miles. It was crossing the finish line. It was showing that I was stronger than everything that tried to defeat me and that I was going to go on and live the best life I could because you know, they tried to kill me that day, but what they did, they saved me because I look at life so differently now and I'm thankful for that. Wow, wow. I, one of the lines in your book that's a takeaway, I love this. You, you say that now you, you try to overcome fear with audacity. And one of the audacious things that you did is you faced down your terrorist bomber in court. What did you say to this dude? It was difficult. I didn't want to testify, and I had to, and he, he never looked at me once. I tried to look at him and meet his eyes, and he wouldn't. But then I got to go back, and I had to give a victim impact statement standing before him. And he looked at me for the first time, and we never, our eyes never glanced away. And so I stared and I said, I was asked to give a victim impact statement today, but in order to do that, I would have to be someone's victim. And I'm definitely not yours, and I'm definitely not your brother's. And I went on to say that no one was going to remember their names. What they were going to do is remember everything that everyone affected had gone on to do, and that they didn't win. No matter what, they did not win, and they saved my life. And I I was going to continue to feel blessed. Wow, wow, wow. thank you. 
One of the, uh, one of the ongoing uh, demonstrations of God's faithfulness to you, God, God's hand in all this, his intimate concern for you, is, uh, is a guy named Chris. So you got to tell us about Chris. Oh, I don't have enough time to tell you about Chris. Chris is wonderful. But Chris was an old college boyfriend of mine. We met when we were 18 and instantly hit it off. We first person that I met when I went to college and, and back in eastern Kentucky. And we ended up separating because my sister had heart surgery. And I left the campus to be with her. Okay. And Chris and I lost touch. And we hadn't seen each other in 10 years. And a couple years ago, he was on a business trip in Houston, and I happened to see it on Facebook. And then our mutual friend from college, who I had no idea, lived 20 minutes away from me, and he was coming down to see him. And so we all got together for dinner, and the same person that said, I'm never getting married again, I'm living alone for the rest of my life, and had gone to, I'd gone to extensive therapy, I got married to Chris and, and did everything I said I would never do four and a half months later on a beach in Jamaica. <laughs> oh, wow. Almost as if God wove the whole thing yes. together, huh? Yeah. So you, you say in your book that you guys want to do this thing right. And so you want spiritual concerns to be at the center. You want God to be at the center of your marriage. What, what does that look like? How, how does that make a, a marriage different? I've seen both sides of it. I was in a marriage that did not have God a part of it. I thought it did, and now I look back and I say, no way. But I'm, I'm really grateful for that experience because it makes me look at Chris and just say, man, God, I am so glad you brought this amazing man into my life. And you know, that's when God is at the center, everything works. Everything is just so much better. And so my relationship with Chris is different than any relationship I've ever had with a man. And he adopted Noah. And we had another baby, Riley. And in, that's another miracle because in Boston they said I would never be able to have another baby again based on my internal injuries. And, you know, I almost lost my life when Riley was delivered and she almost lost hers. But after a summer in the NICU, God's plans prevailed and she is a healthy, happy, 18-month-old. You know, I think we have uh, we got a family pick we want to show you in honor of Halloween week here. This is, this is their family. Notice the peg leg pirate. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And our, that, that's a real parrot. That's Captain Jack Sparrow. It's our talking parrot. And there's Riley as Tinkerbell. We do things every year for Halloween. So there was another year that Chris and I, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. Yes. <laughs> You guys are sick. We are. We're a little twisted. But we try to just incorporate humor. Oh. My, my friends, every year they do this. They take my leg from me so they can make a leg lamp for Christmas story. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So as, as we wrap things up, um, you've been doing some, some speaking. Yes. You, you started a foundation. Mm -hmm. I mean, just tell us in a line or two about that. The foundation sure. is? So it's Rebecca's Angels, and our mission is to provide funding and resources for kids with PTSD due to trauma. There are over 3 million cases just reported by CPS every year, and the majority do not go treated, because, or they go untreated because therapy is expensive. And if you're thinking $150 per session, and usually this is for months at a time, if not years, 
you know, people can't do that. And so what we hope to bring is, is to children, you know, there's a lot out there for adults in terms of PTSD, but the children need help because if they can get treated now, they're going to go on and live much more successful lives. And I had PTSD as a child and didn't even realize it until yeah, I sat yeah. down as an adult. So we're really excited. It's How becoming cool a huge passion. It? Yeah. Again, God redeeming and making something good yes. come, come out of bad. A lot of your speaking is done, Rebecca, in places where you don't get to do a lot of God talk, mm-hmm. okay? It's a secular environment. But you're in church today. You could say whatever you want, yes. all right? <laughs> yes. And so, you know, I, I want to bring things to a close by mentioning again that there are a lot of hardships represented in an auditorium like this, multiplied four times over four campuses, multiplied by all the people watching uh, uh, us online right now. And again, some of them are adversities that have happened to us from the outside. Some of them are problems we've brought on ourselves, okay? So whether our problem is an abusive parent or it's a broken marriage or it's, you know, whatever, it seems to us, having listened to you, that your relationship with Christ has been integral to this whole thing, that it's what has gotten you through. So speak to those of us in the midst of hardship right now about the difference that Christ can make in a life. If I didn't have Christ in my life, I would not be stand, or sitting here before you today to, to tell you about it at all because I would have given up a long time ago. You know, the nightmares never go away. And the, the things that I saw that day and experienced are something that's going to be with me the rest of my life. But I think that God gives us each a story and each our own struggles and obstacles that we go through. But the, the thing that I have learned and the most amazing thing about it is that each of our stories can be used as tools to help someone else along the journey. And if we put our faith and our hope in Christ, he will never, ever leave us and he will never fail. And so, you know, the girl that didn't have Christ growing up as much as I should have, I, I look back on her and I wish that I could instill that. But then I see myself, I'm 30 years old and my love for the Lord is so strong and I just want that to grow every single day. And that's what I wish for everyone in here is just to have that relationship because without Christ in your life, life. What, what is it? What, how much purpose can your life have? And if you don't have hope in him, then what do you have hope in? Because everything else is going to fail us, but he won't ever. Yes. Yeah. And I want to say to those of you listening, this is why we do these inspiring stories weekends, because we want to offer hope. Um, And, you know, outside of Christ, I, I like what you said a moment ago, Rebecca, you would wish a relationship with Christ for everybody here. That's our wish for you as well, friends. And, and let me tell you how you get that, because in just a moment as we close, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make that decision to cross that line to surrender your life to Christ. You know, it, it begins with the recognition that in managing your own life, you've not done a really great job. You know, the Bible puts it starkly. Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, we all fall far short of God's standards. There's stuff in our lives we're ashamed of, we're embarrassed of, and quite frankly, it keeps us from a relationship with a holy God. And, and, and what's worse, the Bible says that the penalty for our sins is death. See, if God is the giver of life and we decide to go our way instead of God's way and we sort of disconnect from him, the, the result is death. It's spiritual death, it's physical death at the end of this life. It's eternal death in the world to come separated from God. God loved us so much, he didn't want that for us. And so he sent his son. And Jesus didn't come to the planet just to be a great moral teacher. 
You know, Jesus came to give his life because, remember, the penalty for sin is what? It's death. So Jesus took the death our sins deserve. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was not just for the sins of the world. It was for your sin and for my sin. And so, so the starting point of a relationship with Jesus is to own up to that, to own up to the mess that we've made trying to run our own lives, and then to say, thank you. Thank you for coming to earth to give your life on a cross. But once you've received that forgiveness, as you make, you make that decision, there's a flip side to the decision. It's the surrender side. W what I think you've heard loud and clear through Rebecca's story is it's possible to think you have Christ in your life because you believe all the right stuff about him. You know, you learned it in Sunday school, you learned it in CCD, or you heard it from a friend, and you believe all the right stuff. But there's never been a surrender. And there's a huge difference between believing in your head certain facts about Jesus and really surrendering in your heart to him. And so as we close today, uh, we're going to sing a closing song in a few minutes, but before we do that, I want to give you the opportunity across our four campuses to make that surrendered decision. Okay, if you've never done this before, or, you know, this may be an amnesty weekend for you because you made the decision and you've wandered away like Rebecca did several times in her life, this is the weekend to come back. This is the, the weekend to say, I'm all in. This is the weekend to say, I'm, I'm really tired of trying to run it myself. I want to give it all to Christ. So I'm going to ask our campus pastors at each of our four campuses to lead us in a prayer right now that will give you the opportunity to invite Christ to come into your life, not just as Savior and forgiver, but as the ruler, as the king, as the leader of your life. So would you bow together with me in prayer right now? Our campus pastors will lead you in prayer, and I'll lead us here in, in prayer at St. Charles. Let's pray together. You know, the words that I pray right now are really not, uh, they're not magical. They're just words I would suggest to you, but you've got to pray from your own heart because ultimately God sees the intent of your heart, the sincerity of your heart. So you can mess up the words, but if you get, if you get the truth right here, it's going to change your life. And it begins by doing what I said a moment ago, saying to God, I've never admitted this to you, but I've made a mess of things trying to run my own life. When you say that to God, maybe you could just recall some of your favorite transgressions, because we all got our favorites. It may be anger, it may be greed, it may be lust, it may be selfishness, it may be pride. But right now, say to this holy God, you're bowed in his presence, say to him, God, I admit that my sin has kept me at arm's length from you. And it's brought about a spiritual deadness in my life. Can you say that to him right now and mean it from your heart? But now turn the corner and thank him for sending his son. You know, you may have believed this all your life, but you may have never said it to him before. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that when he died on the cross, he took the penalty my sins deserve. Can you say that? And because he took your penalty, he, he's now able to offer you a gift that nobody else can offer you. He's able to offer you complete forgiveness. Would you receive the gift? Would you say, I want that gift right now. I want you to be the savior of my life. But don't stop there. One more step here. Because you don't want to get right back into the soup you're you know, you're getting out of right now. And so you need to say, and I want to get off the throne of my life, and I want you to begin 
to be king of my life. Tell him that. I'm going to get off the throne. I want you to lead. Tell him it's your heart's desire to learn what that means. I really want to learn what it means to have you in my life like Rebecca has you in her life. I mean, we're seeing someone on stage today who has an obvious relationship with God that many of us have never experienced. Can we say, God, that's what I want for my life? I want Christ as my leader. Now, before I say amen to this prayer, some of you have just been praying this from your heart, and you know you really mean it. But here's the deal. Whenever we make a decision like this, and we call it around Christ's community the most important decision you'll ever make in your life, the most important decision. But you just made it internally in your heart where nobody can see it. The person sitting next to you can't see it. In fact, you can't see it either. And so the danger is tomorrow when you wake up, you're going to wonder, did I really do that? And so I'm going to ask you to do something right now, physical, something physical that will underscore that internal spiritual decision you just made. This is for your benefit. This is to help you remember that on this Sunday morning in November of 2017, you surrendered your life to Christ. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do across our four campuses. If you just prayed that prayer of surrender, I want you to stand to your feet for one second and sit down. Not too hard to do. One second, stand to your feet, sit back down. That's your way of saying to God and to yourself, I just surrendered my life to Christ. Would you do that? Good. Somebody else? Good. All right, all across the auditorium, just stand up and sit back down. This is your decision. This is your moment. And you want to remember this moment. So you're going to stand up and sit back down. Good. In the balcony as well. Okay, I've seen uh, quite a number of people do that. Anybody else? Let me, let me close in prayer for you. God, I want to thank you for those in whose hearts you're working. It's obvious. In fact, your word actually says that none of us are inclined to come to you if it weren't for you drawing us to yourself, you know, we would give you a stiff arm. We would walk the other direction. So the decision these folks just made is an indication that you're at work in their hearts. And there are probably many more of us who made that decision of surrender a moment ago, but just, you know, we were too fearful to stand. That's all right. But I pray that you'd help us now to live the decision, that you'd come to live inside of us like Rebecca has described that this would be a turning point in our lives that we'd look back at and say, that was the day I surrendered to Christ and he's made all the difference. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we sing a closing song, I just want to say to those of you who made that surrender decision, we, we've got a gift for you because we know you just made a single decision that gets you launched into a relationship with Christ, but that single decision, you want to become a daily walk. You, you don't want it to be one step. You want it to be a sequence of steps every day. And so we put together a little packet of information that we give away weekly here at Christ Community. It's called the Next Steps Packet. Okay, and in the Next Steps Packet, there's a Bible with a bookmark in it, the you know, best place to start reading, because the Bible's a big book, and we'll get you started in, in the spot that tells you about Jesus, who you just surrendered your life to. And there's all sorts of other information in this packet that will help you get going. There's, there's an invitation to something called Alpha. 
Alpha is a 10-week Bible study, got started in Great Britain, and now it's being used all around the world to help people who are brand new to truly following Jesus to get started. Or people who've not yet made that decision, they're still kicking the tires, they got questions. And so we do it at Christ Community Church periodically. It's a, it's a 10-week course of Q&A. You get, you get to ask all your questions about spiritual things. And there's an invitation to that in the Next Steps packet as well. Here's where they are. At the back of the section, the zone that you're sitting in right now, there's a table. There's nine zones in our auditorium and up in the balcony. And at the zone table, there's a flag that'll go up at the end of the service identifying the zone table. On that table, there are next steps packets. So if you prayed to surrender your life to Christ and you want one, just pick it up on your way out, okay? It's yours free. We ask you, don't pick it up if it doesn't represent a decision to surrender to Christ because we want them left for those for whom they need, you know, people who really need this, this information. So that's there for you. Get it on your way out today. Now, we're going to sing a closing song, and as we get to our feet to sing it, I think we owe uh, just uh, some gratitude to Rebecca for coming, speaking to us today.